So we're in a series uh, where we are talking about this thing of commitment, and uh, we've talked about how our commitments actually tend to define us. You can look at the things that a person commits him or herself to, and you can tell what's important to them. You can tell what shapes them, and those commitments uh, affect their character. Uh, The second week of this series, we talked about financial commitments. Uh, Jesus said, give, and it will be given to you. And we talked about tithing. We talked about living uh, generously in our lives. And and, uh, we saw that if we give, if we listen to Jesus, if we live generously, we actually experience uh, a more joyful, uh, a more blessed life. It's just what happens. Uh, And really, that's the way all of God's laws work. They're actually given to us for our benefit, God's laws. Uh, They're not given to us to limit our joy or our happiness, but to guide us to true joy and to happiness. Uh, I heard a pastor observe one time (laughs) that in many churches, when we take the offering, we say, you know, if you're visiting with us this morning, don't feel any obligation to participate in this part of our service. And we kind of did that this morning. But we never do that with other commandments of the Bible. Um, We never say, you know, if you're visiting with us this weekend, you know, go ahead and covet or... Uh, go ahead and murder or go ahead and commit adultery. And the reason we don't do that is because life actually is better if you obey the laws of God because we were actually meant to live righteously and that would be obeying God's laws. If you listen to Jesus when Jesus says give and live generously, your life will actually be happier. There will be more joy in your life. The laws of God are, are good for us. Uh, even though we struggle and fail often to keep them, they're good for us. Then last week, we looked at relationships. We talked about our need of each other, our need for committed, loving relationships, whether that's friendships or whether that's in the context of a marriage, for better or worse, till death do us part. We saw that human beings thrive in the context of committed, loving relationships, relationships with a promise. And those relationships, um, they actually, too, uh, serve to form us and to define us and to sharpen or, or create the character of Jesus in us. This week, we're going to look at God's commitment to us. So we're going to shift our focus a little bit. And once again, we're going to see that God's commitment to us defines us if we trust in him. Uh, God's commitment to us actually gives us an identity if we believe what he says, if we listen, if we accept what he does for us. And it really comes down um, oftentimes to we hear what God says about us, we see what God does for us, and the question is, you know, do I embrace that? Uh, Do I, by faith, accept that? Um, It's a matter of trust, really tends to always be a matter of trust. Can I trust God with, with the, the things in my life? Can I trust God with the things that he says about me? Can I trust God with my relationships or my money or my identity or my time or my children or life or death? Can I trust God with these things? And the truth about all of us is we really do wrestle with that question. Can I trust God? At some level, we need to believe that if we trust God with uh, one of these very important things, uh, we, we need to really come to that place where we believe it will be good for us. What we actually believe is that oftentimes, if I trust God with some of these important areas of my life, it's going to hurt. And so we hesitate to trust, to embrace the identity that he would give us versus one we would create for ourselves. But it turns out God knows, <laughs> he knows us well. 
He knows all about our problem with trust. And uh, you may recall that once a long time ago, God came to a man named Abram. And uh, this is what he said to him. He came to Abram living in the land of Ur. And he said, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be, a, will be blessed through you. It's very interesting because um, I think Abram is being asked to trust God with a lot here. There's a lot on the table. I don't, wouldn't diminish what he's being asked to do uh, for a second. I mean, he's being asked to trust God with his livelihood. We would assume that things were flourishing for Abram. He had quite a large household there in Ur. So why get up and why move? So he's trusting God with his livelihood. He's trusting God with the future of his family. He's trusting God with his own safety. All of this stuff and more is on the table with this instruction that God gives him. And so it's not terribly surprising. You know, when there's a kind of an ongoing conversation that Abram's having with God around these, these commands and, and this direction that God is giving him. And it unfolds in three different chapters in Genesis, chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17. So we're going to be looking at two of those chapters, 12 and 15 together. And in Genesis 15, this conversation is continuing. And Abram has a question for God. He says, sovereign Lord, how can I know I will gain possession of it? And there he's talking talking about the land, but he's really saying, how can I know all of these promises are going to come true? It's a trust question. And I hope you kind of feel the tension of that. I'm guessing you've asked questions of God like this before, maybe not that exact question, but trust kinds of questions. Sovereign Lord, he says. So he, he gives God a big title there in the question that he's asking. Sovereign Lord, the one who's in control. And I know you're in control, but I still have questions. How do I know that I can trust you? How do I know you're actually going to come through on all of these promises? How do I know you're not going to hurt me or get me hurt? And you know, if I was the sovereign Lord, I would be tempted to say, shut up, puny man, and just do what I tell you to do. I mean, that's what I'd be tempted to say. But the amazing thing when I read this story is that that's not the way God interacts with Abram at all. In fact, quite the contrary. We continue to read in the story there in Genesis 15, and it says, so the Lord said to him, well, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abraham uh, brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half, simply because they were too small. So we read this in our day and age, and we kind of scratch our heads, and we wonder, okay, what is this, some ancient tribal, right? What, what's going on here? This is very, very foreign to us and to our culture. Uh, but as some of you will know, in the ancient world, when people were going to make a commitment to each other, uh, they would cut a covenant. That's actually the language, cutting a covenant. That's the Hebrew language for when we translate that into English, we talk about making a covenant. It's literally cutting a covenant. There's blood involved. There's sacrifice involved. You see, covenant was all about making a promise. Um, but it's really a, a serious promise when you enter into a covenant. It's a solemn vow that you're taking that takes two parties and binds them together. Binds them together. In a covenant, you're saying, you can trust me. In a covenant, you are saying, I, I will keep my word. In a covenant, you're saying, you can count on my commitment. 
And people did this because, quite frankly, uh, they were often untrustworthy. So when you were going to really bind yourself to someone in a very significant way, there was this ceremony, this cutting of a covenant. A little bit like children when they play. And I don't know. I don't know about your children. My children were a little bit untrustworthy at times. They were certainly not like their father. Um, and you know, kids will play and then suddenly you get to that point in the play where they're going to tell you something. They want you to believe it, right? And they go, no, 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 I'm not kidding. You know, what is it? Cross my heart and hope that I stick a needle in my eye. Ooh, ooh, that's, that's bothersome. Um, but the idea here is that you want to convince someone that what you're about to tell them is absolutely going to be the truth. It's, you're going to be faithful to it. And so you take upon yourself uh, what's been called an oath of malediction. Uh, the cutting of a covenant was an oath of malediction. Cross my heart, hope that I stick a needle in my eye. May something bad happen to me if I don't keep my word to you. And they would take these animals, as we read, and they would cut them in half and put the pieces uh, opposite sides of each other and create literally a path uh, right through which a person could walk. Now, another part of this ceremony that would often happen, not every time, but often, they would even at some point after the covenant ceremony of uh, the pieces and so and passing through them, they would take some of that meat of some of the animals and they would cook it and there would be a big feast, a, a celebration, if you will, of the relationship that has just been created. But in this ceremony, they were saying, if I don't keep my word to you, may what happened to these animals happen to me. An oath of malediction. Are you with me so far? Okay. And then the parties making the covenant together would walk through the pieces. It was a covenant walk. Kind of a gruesome, gruesome walk. Bloody to us. But understand an oath was a serious Business And when covenants would get made, if, if they were made by a king, perhaps entering into a covenant with a group of people, it was almost always because the king wanted something from those people, right? Uh, the king wanted grazing rights, he, or he wanted their land, or he wanted their water rights, or he wanted the rights to the minerals, the gold, the precious metals that were there, or he wanted taxes. He, he wanted something, and usually he would promise something like protection in return, but most Often, he was really just promising to protect them from himself. In other words, I won't kill you. That's what he was promising. But in this story that we just read in our reading, things are very oddly different. You probably noticed. Abram is, is going to get great blessing. Abram is going to become, a, obviously, a wealthy person. He's going to become a great people, a great nation. He's going to receive a child, which so far he has none. He's going to get a promised land. He's going to get a relationship with the sovereign Lord of the universe. This God is going to protect him. And do you see that he's really being given the whole package? He's being given a, a complete identity here from the sovereign Lord. That's what he's being promised. And it's interesting, you know, if you ask the question, what does God get out of this? The answer really is nothing. I mean, God gets nothing that he needs here. I mean, he does get somebody to bless. He gets somebody to love. He gets somebody to whom he, you know, commits himself. But he's not really taking anything from Abram. He's just giving love, commitment, relationship, and, and all of that... Um, 
he's giving to Abram, and in so doing, he's giving Abram an identity. Uh, you've, if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you've run across a, a verse or an idea that gets repeated over and over and over and over again in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and it's picked up again in the New. But it, it, it's, a, it's a promise that when God enters into relationship, committed relationship, covenant relationship with his people, uh, he says, I will be your God. And can you finish the second half? And you will be my people. That's what's going on here in this the formation of this covenant, the formation of this relationship. And frankly, when this was unfolding, it was mind-blowing for the Israelites. There had never been in the history of the human race an idea of an all-good, all-powerful God who wanted to enter into covenant relationship with people, people with whom God would make promises. God would commit himself to them, unheard of. Unheard of. You see, in that day, pretty much everyone believed in gods. I mean, they, I would say they had the sense to look around and go, wow, look at these wonderful, magnificent things. Someone must have made them. But yeah, they were naive and stupid. But, you know, they, they, that was the conclusion they came to. Someone must have made Just about everybody believed in gods. But they thought of relating to the gods as kind of a contract deal. Um, you followed Baal, you followed Moloch, or, or earlier it would have been Zeus or it could have been Apollo, and you build them a temple, right? And you give them your grain and your offerings, and occasionally you offer sacrifices, uh, and it would be from your livestock, or even if you were a deadly, deadly serious, it might even be a child. This happened, happened a lot. You would worship this God. And uh, then <laughs> it was this God's job <laughs> to do something for you. Uh, maybe you were asking for fertility or for rain or for wealth or for victory in battle or your health or whatever it was. It was kind of a quid pro quo relationship, really. And if your God didn't give you what you wanted, well, you would switch gods. And people did this. There were often gods that were prevalent and worshiped in certain areas. And, you know, if your God wasn't doing for you what you wanted him to do, you would try another God. This happened. You did whatever would help you. And at first we kind of chuckle. I didn't hear you chuckle. I thought it was kind of chuckle material, but you didn't chuckle. But anyway, first you kind of chuckle at this. And we say in our culture, well, what naive people these were. How naive to think of relating to the gods that way. But truth be told, a lot of people today who profess to believe in God relate to God in this contractual kind of manner. We don't think about God for a long time. And if things are going great, we don't have to, I suppose. But then when there's something that goes wrong or something that we need, God, I need this job. God, I want this relationship. God, I, I need my health. I need you to do this in the life of one of my children. I need you to arrange my circumstances this way or that way. And if you do that, well, you know, I'll go to church more or I'll give more or I'll read the Bible more. Or I'll do some worship stuff more. It's a contract kind of thing. And I found over the years in talking to people who go to churches that a lot of people practice the Christian life this way, somewhat contractually. People haven't changed that much. And so we play all these spiritual games to get what we want from God. But understand, when it's a contract relationship like this, it's not a love relationship. It's really very manipulative. 
I'll do this if you do that, quid pro quo, you see. And I'm always wondering, are you trying to take advantage to me? Are you safe? Can I trust you or do you want to hurt me? Can I get what I want, what I think I need? But a covenant relationship is a different kind of thing. You see, covenant, again, as I said before, is is about promise. Promises made from the heart. Families are built on these kinds of promises. What makes a family a family are really covenantal kinds of love, promises of the heart. I am your daddy and I will always be your daddy. I don't care where you go. I don't care what you do. You may betray my values. You might even deny my God. You can break my heart. You can reject me. It doesn't matter. I will always be your dad. It's a heart thing. It's a promise thing. God comes to this little man, Abram, and he says, I will always be your Abba. You will always be my child. I will always love you. I will always be with you in any and every circumstance, whether you are aware of it or not. I will always be working behind the scene scene, together for your good, whether you know that or are aware of that or not. And this idea that God wanted to enter into covenant relationship was absolutely mind-boggling to Israel. They wrote about it often. It's mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. Covenants that God made with Adam, covenants that God made with Noah, covenants that God made with Moses and with David, and then, of course, this covenant, the covenant that God made with Abram. And this covenant that God made with Abram, we get to the point in the, the story of the unfolding, um, this unfolding episode where we come to the covenant walk. Uh, and again, something really strange happens at this point in the story. It would be very uh, apparent to somebody living in the ancient world if they were reading this story. This would, in fact, jump off the page to them. It says, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So we understand uh, because of other passages elsewhere and the ways that God has appeared to people at certain times and certain places that this blazing torch, this fire pot thing is, it's an appearance of God. This is symbolic of God. It represents God in this vision, the smoke and this fire. And the smoke and the fire, the smoking pot and the blazing torch pass through the pieces, goes on a covenant walk. But here's the interesting, odd, very weird thing. It does it alone. God passes through the pieces alone. It's like God is saying, Abram, you don't need to pass through the pieces. You watch what I do here. I am going to do the covenant walk for you. And if this covenant gets broken, may the, may the curse of the broken covenant fall on me, is what God is saying. Incredible. Cross my heart, hope to die, I'll take the punishment. Now, normally, as I said, this covenant involves two parties. Both parties together, side by side, would pass through the pieces. But not here. Now, what's so interesting to me when you think about all of this covenant and covenant relationship is I have a problem, personal problem. It's the same problem that we see in the life of Israel. And that is I am always, always 
breaking the covenant. There will be moments when I think to myself, you know, I just really don't want to obey God. I'd really rather just indulge this or that appetite. Covenant broken. I don't really want to bring God my stuff, you know, or be generous in life and have a heart and mind like Jesus towards others. Covenant broken. I don't really feel like forsaking my sin and repenting or turning from it and seeking change. Covenant broken. I don't really feel like having scripture shape my mind and uh, I would rather just have the garbage that comes to me that I take in from the world shape my mind. Covenant broken. And I'm ashamed to say, but it's the truth about me. I am a covenant breaker just like Israel. You know, Israel, if you've read their story, you know there would be these episodes, these periods of time, sometimes decades, where they would ignore God, they would ignore his word, their hearts would become almost like stone that would become cold towards God. They would go after other gods. There would be temples and places of worship set up all throughout the city of Jerusalem, even in the temple complex itself, where they could worship and pursue other gods. And then something would happen. And they would need God. And they would remember his covenant. Someone would. And they would remember his love. And they would remember his goodness. And they would come home. Very much like the story that Jesus told, you know, the one where all, you know, the prodigal son. I mean, it was that kind of story. The, The son goes off and wishes his father was dead, forgets all about his father, spends his inheritance and gets to a very, very, very desperate place. And it's then that he remembers his father. It's the same dynamic. Jesus, he's telling that story. He's doing it in the context of the history of Israel and how Israel is the prodigal son, always gone, always leaving, always forsaking, right? But then something happens and something drives them to a place of recommitment. They recommit themselves to God. They'd have a a covenant renewal ceremony. And there are actually, oh, maybe five, six, seven of these in the Old Testament. And they're so interesting. And when these episodes occur where the nation of Israel comes together and there's a covenant renewal that happens, these are always so rich and so beautiful because it, it changes the whole trajectory of the nation for a period of time. And one of those times, this is a long time after Abram, This is actually when God is dealing with Israel, bringing them out of Egypt. God is working through Moses and uh, uh, Moses and the people are at the Mount uh, of Sinai and God reminds the people of Israel, I am your Abba. I am your father. He tells them, I delivered you from slavery in Egypt and I am going to make you into a great nation. And he gives them the law, the 10 commandments, all the civil, ceremonial, uh, moral law. And then in Exodus 24, it tells us that Moses took the book of the covenant, the law, and he read it to the people. That was a long sermon, by the way, when they, when they did that. Boy, reading the law, the law of the covenant to the people. But, but the spirit of God was moving and working and something wonderful happened. You know, the book of the covenant is, of course, it's the Old Testament. It's all about God. It's about God's mission of rescue with his people of Israel. It's about God's laws, which were to bless them. You do understand, right, that God's laws were actually meant to bless us, not curse us. Uh, God's laws are given to us so that we can move into fruitful living and and thriving life as opposed to uh, figuring out for ourselves what that might look like and discovering that that doesn't lead to life, not really. 
God's laws are meant to bless us. And so the book of the covenant is all about God and about his law and about God's love and God's provision for them. And Israel is overwhelmed by this as they hear the law, the book of the covenant being read to them. And the sovereign Lord of the universe, the fact that he wants to enter into this covenant relationship is with Israel, it's just, it, it frankly blows their mind. I mean, whoever has heard of anything like this happening before, it hadn't. And it says this, it says, they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey, they say. And the idea is not that they're grudgingly obeying. That's not the idea at all. If you hear that, you're, you're misreading. It's not, okay, okay, I'll obey a bunch of law. No, 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 no. It's, I want to give God my whole heart. That's what Israel is doing. That's the work of the Spirit in the lives of the people of Israel at that time. It's a little bit like a, a marriage vow renewal. Um, being a pastor, I've had the privilege to do this a number of times, and it's rich when I, I, I love doing this. But, you know, couples that have been married for decades, 30, 40, 50, even 60. Did I tell you that my 40th is coming up? <laughs> I know I have told you. I'm just going to keep reminding you. And you can send presents to 29 Blue Sage. That's terrible. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, you get into, you, you meet these couples, and they've spent decades together. And they have been through hell and high water, joys and heartaches and relational difficulties and challenges, and probably health challenges. In fact, they're probably even going to be making these vows with new parts and pieces in them, right? But they want to stand together again. And they want to say it in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live, even if that's not going to be very long. And when you witness this, <laughs> oh man, you just want to go, yeah, that is so cool. And I'll tell you what, it's a picture of the fact that the heart of love loves to commit. That is always true. The heart of love loves to commit. It loves to make promises. When you love somebody, you want to say, I will be there for you. I promise. That's covenant love, you understand. That's just a shadowy, dim reflection of what covenant love is. Now, in the Old Testament times, there was a part of the covenant renewal that, that, that kind of seems weird to us. Covenant commitments generally involve symbols, just like in a, you know, when we take vows for, uh, in the context of a marriage, we have a symbol to represent that. It's usually often the exchange of rings. And when you see that ring, it reminds you of the promises that you've made. Well, in a covenant renewal ceremony, the symbol was blood. <laughs> that was the symbol. Moses reads the book of the covenant and people say, hey, whatever God says, we will do it. And then Moses took blood from the sacrifices that were being offered in the context of this covenant renewal ceremony. And we read in Exodus 24, he sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the blood of the covenant. Can you picture this? Moses takes blood. Animals have died for this. He takes blood. Now, he probably used a hyssop branch. I say that because in this occasion, it's not mentioned specifically, but in other occasions when this type of ceremony was happening, they would take a, a, a hyssop branch, a branch, leaves on it and so. They would dip it in a, in a basin or you know, bucket of blood. 
and just kind of fleeing it, flick it on the people. Sprinkle it, sprinkle it on the people, you see. Wouldn't that be something if we did that here? Next Sunday, we're having a blood service. Wear appropriate clothing, right? Yeah. Well, that's what, that's what was going on here. Why would Moses sprinkle blood on the people? Well, you know, we live in a very different world than ancient Israel, very different. They lived in a world that was, there's no other way to say it, very aware of life and death and the bloody mess of just doing life. We live in this kind of sanitized, cleaned up, you know, tied with a bow kind of world. We have handy wipes and sterile towelettes and sanitation gels and cellophane packaging and air fresheners. And we avoid death and dying and germs and blood and pretty much anything that's unpleasant to us. And so we don't kill what we eat, not many of us. We don't butcher what we eat. We don't even cook what we eat in a lot of cases anymore. We think too that we are a very smart culture. We think that we have everything pretty much figured out, dialed in. We can explain everything through science. We can control most of it through technology. And so we can take death and we can shut it away where we don't have to look at it and we don't have to smell it. We don't have to process it, not very often. And so when people are dying, what do we do? Well, we send them to a hospital. And when people are dead, what do we do? Well, we send them to a funeral home instead of bringing them into our home and grieving the dead. We probably even figure in our culture that one of these days we're going to figure out how to beat death altogether. But we deceive ourselves, friends. We forget what a bloody thing life, birth, and death really are. You know, when we had our first child, um, there were some complications in the process of Holly uh, giving birth. And, and I knew something was wrong. I could see the doctors kind of uh, administering to her needs in the situation. And, and uh, come to find out after, she, she nearly bled to death. And what I remember about that birth was just seeing blood and blood and blood everywhere. A lot of blood. Um, that was when I learned that kids do not come in neat, clean little packages. I mean, it was blood and guts and smelly fluids and grossness everywhere. If you have never seen a birth, it's awful. Yelling and pain and sliminess. And, and then the baby comes out and he doesn't look that good either at first. I mean, let's be honest. You know, the nurses whisk them away and clean them all up. And then they could be giving you a different baby. You wouldn't even know. But I mean, it doesn't look like it did when it first came out. But right then and there, that little baby needs somebody to care for him or her to keep them alive. That little baby needs someone to make promises to him or her. I will be there. I will be with you. I will be your mommy. I will be your daddy. Because if not, if those promises are not made explicitly or implicitly, that baby is going to die. You see, we forget these things because we live in a rather sanitized world. But friends, we are born in blood. And we live as long as our blood lets us live. 
And when we lose our blood, we lose our life. Life is in the blood. And so making covenants, making binding commitments were messy things in the ancient world. They still are. Covenants, you see, were a heart deal, a blood deal, a life and death deal. And when someone breaks a covenant, there is blood to be paid, you understand. The problem was and is, too, that we just keep breaking the covenant. God's covenant with us. We doubt, we question, we lie, we clutch, we hold, we sin. Our hearts get hard and cold. But what does God do? God makes another promise. This we read in Jeremiah 31. It says, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Talk about patience. Talk about faithfulness. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I, get this picture, took them by the hand. It's a parent leading a child through dangerous waters through dangerous territory. When I took them by the hand, tenderness, compassion, to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Yet another picture. God uses the most tender, the most intimate picture possible of human love. I was a husband to them. They were my wife, he is saying. What a picture. Who's ever heard of something like this happening before. I heard a speaker make this observation and I thought it was very clever and uh, right to the point. He, he pointed out that uh, in Hollywood weddings, they always ask this old question and you think about it if this isn't true. They always ask the question in a Hollywood wedding, does anyone know of any reason why this woman should not be married to this man? And always, every time, there is a reason. Somebody objects, right? It's, it's usually so Sandra Bullock will not marry the wrong man. 99% of the time, that's what it is. That's what's going on. But we don't ask this question anymore at weddings. I don't think I've ever asked it. But you know, when God was marrying us, when God was entering into covenant with us, does anyone know of any reason why this woman should not be married to this man? Yeah. I do, me, my heart, my covenant-breaking heart, my ego, my pride, my selfishness. But God goes through with the ceremony. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you anyway, not like the old one. That covenant was always being broken. That covenant required sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. My new covenant is not going to be like that covenant. And because of the brokenness of the covenant, there's always blood to be paid, you see. And that grieved the heart of God. And so God makes a new covenant and he sends, you know, the story, his son, Jesus. And I'll tell you something. Nobody ever loved the way Jesus loved. Nobody ever talked about the Father's love 
the way Jesus talked about the Father's love. It's one of the things that got him in so much trouble. He would tell stories like the prodigal son or like the lost sheep or like the lost coin, the story of the, of the, the lost sheep or the lost coin or the prodigal son returning home and coming back and being found. And then Jesus says, all of heaven rejoices. Everybody thought God was mad and angry and hateful. That's not the way Jesus talked about the Father. And because he talked about the Father that way, he faced a lot of opposition, opposition even unto death. And the night before Jesus died, he gathered with his friends together and they reclined around a table and he poured a cup of wine and he said this, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And he was saying, and they sort of understood, not really clearly until later, but he was saying, understand, friends, I am going to die. I'm going to a cross tomorrow. And you're going to run and you're going to deny me and you're going to forget who you are and who I am. And you're going to be in despair and you're going to think it's the end. But believe me, it's not. Because I am coming back, which he did. And here's what's going on. When he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What he was actually doing, he was quoting, or he was referring back to that passage we read earlier in Exodus 24. He was quoting Moses. You see, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant. That's what he said. But Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's my blood. So you see that covenant walk that we read about back there in Genesis chapter 15 and all the promises that God was making to Abram, it was a foreshadowing. It was just looking forward to the day when a new covenant would be made. It was, it was a, a typology, a foreshadowing of the work that Jesus was going to do. It was the smoking pot and the flaming torch that actually represented the work of Jesus himself. When Jesus went to the cross, he was doing the covenant walk for you and me once and for all. No sacrifice need be given again. And you see, that is our God. That is his love for you. That is his mercy for you. That is his provision for you. That is the identity that he gives you. It's found in the covenant that God makes with us. And it is found throughout the pages of Old Testament scripture in particular. I will be your God and you will be my people. Tender words, words of commitment. And you see, in this new covenant, the one foreshadowed there in Genesis 15, the, the one God makes with us through Jesus, God keeps the covenant for you and for me once and for all. And so now we can have moments like this as we prepare to come to this table. God invites you and me to draw near. And he invites us to remember who he is and who we are. He invites us really into something. This, this sacrament is, in a sense, it's, it's like a covenant renewal. 
It's where we remember his faithfulness for us, but it's also where we we come and we repent of sin. And if you think about it, when we come to this sacramental meal like this, the one thing we bring with us is our sin. What else are you going to bring? Your righteousness? You don't have any righteousness except what has been given to you by Jesus. Now, it's true that we also come to this table, if we come appropriately, we come in faith and we come in trust. We believe the promises of God and we come with with gratitude, yes. But understand, that's all open-handed kinds of things that we bring to God. It's nothing to boast of. But you see, now is the time for us to remember. To remember the covenant, to remember God's goodness to us, to remember God's grace to us, to remember God's forgiveness of us, to remember God's provision, to remember God's commitment. You see, every good commitment that we make in our lives is based on this commitment, the commitment that God has made to us. Do you get that? Do I need to go back and re-preach it? Nobody gets it? Anybody get that? Okay, good. Well, pray with me. Heavenly Father, you know about every heart in this room and you know where we've gotten cold or hard or busy or distracted or guilty or afraid or angry or wounded. But Father, we remember now the covenant that you have made with us. And we thank you, Jesus, that when there was blood to be paid, you paid it. You did the covenant walk for us. You became our sacrifice. You took our place on the cross. You suffered the death and the separation that our sins deserved. And so, Father, we come with open hands and open and honest hearts. And we confess and admit to you that we're kind of a mess. We're covenant breakers. And we bring our messy hearts and our messy lives to you. We are your children, Father. And we are so incredibly, incredibly grateful for your commitment to us. Help us come to this meal and feast on Jesus Holy, unreservedly committed to you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.